Section 11 of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Summer Hours on Braden, Part 2 Flounder Catching. By the end of the 70s, Braden Flats had so grown up that considerable changes had taken place in the habits of the local fauna, and correspondingly in the occupations of the local Bradeners. Grey mullet, which to this day haunt the deeper channels in some numbers, prior to the 70s used to swarm over the flats, undoubtedly drawn there by a love of certain species of semi-marine vegetation and the animal life that swarmed among it. Flounders, too, came up the then clearer, quieter, and more accessible river in great numbers, spending much of their time in shrimp and mollusk hunting, and growing fat on their well-fed prey and the juicy cabbage, Alva lactuca, they swarmed on. The tides did not always leave the flats bare, and there was a greater alternation of salt and fresh water, and of the latter a more frequent abundance, which suited them. The local Bradeners possessed several nets, both draw nets, especially manufactured to catch the wily mullet, and stake nets for the flounders. Today, on any wind from the southwest round to southeast, and a point or two beyond, either way, some of the higher flats will remain dry for days, becoming pale brown in colour and white in patches with the salt left by the evaporation of the moisture. These alterations reduce netting to a very poor business indeed. I once helped an old friend with his net, and for a tide we captured two little flounders and more weeds than we wanted. Buts, as we term flounders here, were, in my very early days, caught in immense numbers, and mostly sold for crab bait. Only a few riverside folk troubled, in those palmy days of the local trawling industry, now practically extinct, to cook these luscious, firm-eating fishes. A butt net was a trammel measuring about 70 yards in length. Four nets would be staked in line. The trammel, which was a net about four or five feet deep, was made with a small, loose, light mesh net in the centre, with two coarse mesh nets affixed on either side, so that a fish, in dashing against the obstruction, simply pushed the small net through a big loop, and so bagged itself like a rabbit. The nets were affixed at high water, when the flounders had scattered themselves all over the flats to feed, and they were intercepted on their way back to the channels and drains when the falling tide uncovered the flats. Then came the fisherman with his boat and trunks, boxes perforated with holes, like eel trunks but larger, and the struggling fishers were soon liberated, only to be imprisoned again 
until sufficient were captured to be sent away. Carters drove over from Cromer and Sheringham and gave half a crown per hundred of six score to the hundred. Their days were Tuesdays and Fridays. Fifty and sixty year ago were the time, old Bradeners will tell you. Them were the days when a Bradener could get a livin'. It may be interesting to those who prefer the aristocratic lobster to the plebeian edible crab to state that the latter is one of the cleanest feeders possible, and nothing but the freshest and sweetest morsels will attract him. Even his little cousin, the ubiquitous shore crab, I am confident prefers a live fat shrimp or a toothsome smelt which he has caught in some low to the viler carrion he is usually accredited with being partial to on the other hand the lobster has the most depraved appetite and any garbage is good enough to tempt him to his destruction in the old days the north norfolk catchers used to rely greatly on open hoop nets with which to ensnare their prey, and in bad weather the crabs ran away with much bait. The well-known pots are now exclusively used. Today, flounders are by no means so plentiful, and no one specially nets for them. But should a few score of them happen to get mixed up with the catchers in the smelt nets, they are not despised, for the smelter can dispose of them to the fried fish purveyor or can use them for his own table. When eel picking is in progress, flounders are often struck by the pick, which usually cuts them badly. But for all that, if one is halved by the cut, the fisherman will tell you, Well, boy, that ain't much account. If he's a big un, we can eat both ends on him. I must confess to a great partiality for the toothsome butt, and in my summer holidays on Braden, I always take my butt pick as well as my eel pick. It is nice to tumble out of the houseboat into the punt and repair to the nearest train, and having stabbed a few butts, to row back and clean them and drop them into the waiting fry pan before the kick has fairly died out of them. A few hours drying in the air makes them even better eating. A few viviparous blennies, skinned and fried with them, make a dish fit for a king. Flounders running to a very large size come up the river in December and January, when they spawn and frequent the deeper waters and the confluence of the Bure and the Yare. They are then excellent eating, as they are again in August, when they have been prowling about the flats and are known as grass-fed butts. The winter butt-darting is a laborious process, only followed now by an occasional amateur, for the catches are small compared with those obtained forty or fifty years ago, when darting was a remunerative employment. 
The dart is a rake-like pronged instrument, with seven or eight long barbs and a spread of two feet. A shaft of at least twenty-four feet is necessary. The boat drifts with the tide, and the fisherman mechanically jabs his rude instrument up and down a few inches as he floats. In frosty weather, from the continual running of water up the shaft as it is held horizontally in order to knock off an impaled fish, a coating of ice will form so thickly that it is almost impossible to grasp it. The fish die quickly and freeze as they struggle. This reads cold-blooded, but is it half as cruel and callous as the methods of an angler whose fish, useless when obtained, die at the bottom of his boat by inches? It were best for me to confess at once that I enjoy the recreation of a little summer butt-sticking. Every sportsman, I suppose, makes apology for the pain he inflicts upon the particular section of the brute creation he delights to torture. But he does not always make public confession of it. I like a bit of eel-picking too, although I do not willfully delight in causing pain to any living creature. The pork-butcher, least sentimental of all men, may perhaps have his regretful moments. I purpose for a page or two to take the reader with me on a little picking excursion. You must not mind the mud, so characteristic of Braden and all Norfolk waterways. It will be fun, although the poor flounders might well say with the frogs, What is fun to you is death to us. Herons and great grey gulls closely study the habits of the flounder and account for hundredweights in the course of a year. They wade and paddle in the shallows, hunting for them. Did you ever see a heron strike, seize, and then attempt to swallow a fair-sized specimen? If you have not, you should do so. You will see a rare display of craft, adroitness and contortion, and you will wonder that the fish, whose progress down the bird's throat is distinctly seen, does not choke, or that the stiff ventral spine on the flounder does not stick fast in the heron's gullet, which would also lead to the same untimely end. No sooner is it down that eighteen-inch gullet than the heron takes a sip of water, fresh or salt, as the case may be, tries to look happy, and then reassumes his melancholy pose, waiting for another victim. Why the flounder goes by the local name of but, I cannot decide, nor could a Lancashire fisherman say why he calls it a fluke. However, let that pass, and take this butt-pick, get into the punt, and let us away to the Braden drains. A summer butt-pick is a far lighter weapon than one used in winter. Mine is, you see, a homemade affair, a ten-foot rod with a cross-piece of wood, into which are inserted five or six straightened cod-hooks. 
Yours is a lightly made iron one, with far smaller tines than those used in winter. We shall get among the flounders in the shallows, often in two feet of water, thickened with the silt drawn from the flats by many little creeks. In clear water, the butts are quick to discern you and to dart away in haste. It is seldom you see a butt before you feel it on the pick or dart. Please understand that a flounder is not a dab. Scientists name the first Pleuronectes fleeces, the other Pleuronectes limander. The former prefers a muddy bottom and corresponds with it in colour. Now and again he prowls over shelly bottoms. But the dab is a lighter-hued fish, preferring a sandy habitat. Hence his name of sand dab. He is more delicately flavoured, spawns at a different season, and seldom indeed visits Braden. Now to our sport. June the 30th, 6pm. A fine June day, with a strong ebb tide running. The sun is making his way across a gold-freckled sky towards his rest. A few black-headed gulls are gossiping on the mudflats instead of being at home with their friends at Hofton or Scalton. 6.15. Reach the ship drain after a stiff pull up channel. From our low punt, Braden looks dreary with its vast plateau of mud, bare as a desert and redolent of seaweed. What possessed Turner to overlook such a rare subject for a master pencil? Yon yachting party, harder ground on the mud, would make a pretty object in the foreground of any picture, especially if the expressions of the stranded crew could be caught as well as their anathemas. 6.20. Tied the punt to a stump of the old hulk Agnes. In 1876, her hull would have passed for a relic of Nelson's fleet. In Nelson's day, she ploughed, slowly enough, the main, bringing fruits and wines from the straits. Since I have sawn off the old dog figurehead, it would puzzle a novice to tell which was stem and which was stern. What rare birds have settled on the flat? against which, to block a troublesome creek, she was moored and scuttled. Avocets, spoonbills, black stork, broad-billed sandpiper, and many another. 6.40. Commence starting. He who picks sets at naught the science, the art, the traditions of angling, and of sporting proper. So says Piscator, who will sit a whole tide out and come smiling home with a half-score undersized flounders, and the memory of having hauled out a bushel or two of useless shore crabs, whose pincer claws tore up nine-tenths of the bait, poor harmless shrimps or naked mussels. Yet they term flounder-sticking cruel and barbarous amusement. 
they think nothing of impaling a living crustacean on a torturing hook, and having hooked a fish, of leaving the poor thing to die of suffocation. The flounder sticker spares the shrimp and hastens the death of his prey by a friendly stab. You cannot measure sport nor cruelty with a pair of calipers. 642. I had been pondering thus whilst drifting and jabbing. Jab, jab, jab. Sometimes in muddy ooze where the crossbar goes deeply in and comes up heavy with mud. And then on a shelly bottom, thick with broken valves of clams, the relics of many a generation. Here's a fish. Up quickly comes the dart, with a fine flounder wriggling on two of the tines. A sharp crack on the head stuns it, and knocks it onto the floorboards. 6.45. Impaled two crabs, one kicking excitedly, the other dead as a stone, the tine having gone through the centre of him. A pinprick at the sharp apex of his pointed, curled-up tail is at once fatal. The heart lies immediately under here. 6.50. Jab, jab, jab. We come across a bed of soft weeds thrown in a subterranean heap by some peculiar eddy. We can hardly pull the pick up for the weight that adheres to it. 6.55. Got him. This time we had a splendid fish, with two tines holding him fast, the blood trickling freely from both wounds. He is soon kicking out on the floorboards, the life remaining in him. Who said he is in agony? The fish surely is, if not entirely, all but cold-blooded and does not feel pain like a wounded snipe or a stricken hare. Anglers would think fish have no right to feel at all. They ardently hope they do not. And many actions and doings of fish, which I have observed, have gone far to prove to me that their sensitiveness to pain is not acute. A fish is firmer and sweeter for being bled. Most Dutchmen bleed and otherwise kill their primer fish. Our own fishermen, I fear, do not wait for a turbot or a place to die before gutting them. I have never heard or read a protest against these methods. 6.58 My watch like my waistcoat, is becoming begrimed with mud. You can't help it, and no Sunday suits should be brought onto Braden, where a splash of a wave will stain your sleeve. I now had to rub the watch glass on my elbow to see its hands. Two more fishes impaled, one half-grown, the other no larger than a Transvaal medal. Now we stab three large ones at once. So fishers feel, do they? And it is cruel work. Isn't all butchery cruel? The butcher kills of necessity, does he? Vegetarians would say no to that. 
you will eat your beefsteak without remorse. I like a pan of fish, and of my own catching, too. 7.05. Still jabbing. Fast again. This time I haul out a rusty iron pan. It is 7.12 before I get clear of it, and having straightened three hooks that had bent, continue my jabbing. 7.15. At the corner of George's Deek, here the boat grates on a bed of shells that is probably several feet thick. A boat's length away is a fearfully deep hole, scoured and scooped out by eddying currents. We cannot reach bottom. We find fish lying at the entrance of each of the little tributary creeks that now empty their waters like so many midget waterfalls. We get a lot of fish here, and by 7.30 we have had sufficient sport. We must have caught enough to fill two buckets. Our arms ache with the unwanted exercise. Ache fit to come off. 8 p.m. The sun is setting. All over the west it illumines the blotches and streaks of fleecy clouds which glow with vivid red and gold while the radiant sky is reflected by the moist flats. The ripple, burrowards, is afire with the sun. The blaze dazzles the eye. No sunsets can equal those of Braden. Little by little the fire dies out, and now from burning embers the clouds turn greyer and yet greyer, until at length only the upper edge of that purple curtain hung in the west is touched with glowing brass, and then purpling, too, all die away to vapoury-looking masses. We find ourselves fast aground, but who remembers the greasy, muddy flats when peering into heaven? The gulls got up just now and went silently in a big, wedge-shaped flock to roost upon the sea waves. Harsh croak of heron and mellow piping of plover break the quiet of eventide. 8.30. We gather our harvest of the estuary into a hamper, mop down decks and bottom boards, and row for home. One fine summer night, Blind Ben and I had been doing good business among the creeks and had filled our basket. It was past the hour of midnight when, having left the punt beside the moorhen and walked home by the marshes, we reached the North Quay. The policeman on duty that night must have been sleeping in some quiet corner. Coming to a lamp, we stayed to divide our plunder, which we shot out on the pavement and sat down to count it between us. The aroma of our catch spread far and wide, and we had not gone many yards before one night prowling tabby, and then another of different hue, came to share the smell. 
it was an exceedingly funny thing to see the cats concentrating their forces coming to the wet spot on the pavement as wheel spokes to a common hub and there we left them to their own devices Braden turns at home for many years the comings and goings of those delightful and dainty seabirds have interested me and having heard such glowing accounts of their nesting habits on the north norfolk foreshore i availed myself of the first opportunity of taking a trip to their native haunts on whit monday june the twelfth nineteen o five i paid a flying visit to the quaint old town of wells and in company with dr s h long of norwich spent a couple of hours in exploring the marshes extending immediately from the town front to the seashore the tide was out leaving exposed in the bed of the creek that passes for a river patches of mussel-covered mud a single common tern was hungrily eyeing the rather turbid bit of water from a few yards above the surface making more pretense at than really fishing with a little trouble we crossed over to the marsh in a boat the tramping and scrambling and leaping across the rough marshland intersected by numerous sharply cut creeks that wound round about in every direction and traversed by well-worn trails leading seawards was made interesting by reason of meeting with forms of plant life which with the exception of the michaelmas daisy aster tripolium the jointed glasswort and the aromatic sea southernwood were altogether different from those of my own neighbourhood the thrift was conspicuously sprinkled around with tufts and clumps of the shrub-like sweeter fruticosa in equal abundance the creeks and pole-coals gave evidence of a varied fauna and invited research a pair of redshanks had much to say against our intrusion they evidently had a nest somewhere in one of the higher tussocky corners which would be awkwardly placed however tempting the area generally unless beyond the reach of the tidal water which on the spring tides i am assured places the whole marsh under water i thought it rather odd that there should be here a three hours flood and a nine hours ebb and stranger still that a twelve and fourteen foot rise is a usual thing seeing that at yarmouth not so very far away a six-foot tide is esteemed a good one a couple of shell ducks most picturesquely broke the middle distance with a dash of conspicuous colouring but they were exceedingly shy and quickly took to wing on a subsequent visit in nineteen o six i was fortunate enough to crawl on my hands and knees to a burrow in which only a foot or more from the entrance complacently sat the female on her complement of eggs the locality chosen by the terns for their nesting quarters 
is barely above the common level, and the seawater, rising above the creeks, must, at unusually high tides, trickle into the depressions here and there. These cover an acre or two, perhaps more, and are within a stone's throw of the sea, from which they are separated by a ridge of low, hummocky sand dunes, hardly deserving the name of sand hills. These shut off the highest wave crests of the sea, which at low water is a good mile away. The usual high water limit, distinguished by a long thick rim of cockle shells numbered by myriads and empty valves of solan ensis, which I had but a few moments for inspecting, gave promise of many an hour's remunerative overhauling to any one sufficiently interested. And Mirabile Visu! Nest after nest of common terns dotted the inside edge of this ridge of jetsam and flotsam, a span or two only from the tide limit. The spume of the waves must have blown at times upon them. On asking the keeper what about a higher tide than usual, Tom Kringle suggestively shook his head. On referring to the all-too-meagre report for 1904 of the Wells Wild Bird Protection Society, I find a suggestion of danger. There were neither heavy gales nor high tides to harm the nests, and by poisoning the rats early in the season, the young birds were saved from their depredations. End of section 11